Hey guys, Letitia here from Mindset 2.0, sitting down with someone that I found two, three weeks ago. So excited to talk to Shana Arti. She's a transpersonal psychologist, um, a somatic psychotherapist, and the director of Oxhead School of Personal Psychology. All the interests I'm into and more rolled into one. Shana, thanks for being so friendly and coming on the show. Thank you for So appreciative. <laughs> Shana, one question. Why did you name your um, school slash business Oxhead, out of curiosity? Ah, well, the Oxhead School was a school um, that was founded in China mm. around 600 AD. And it was a very short-lived mm-hmm. um, Zen school. And it was short-lived because it didn't advocate too much practice. It mm. wasn't many schools of Zen Buddhism are mm-hmm. quite formal, whereas the Oxheads believed that we can get trapped by practices. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it's... Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. with spiritual development. So I wanted to imbue my school with those qualities Perfect. that we weren't going to get fixated on formal practice. And I think the danger with um, different spiritual mm-hmm. branch, branches is that there's a lot of dogma and doctrine mm-hmm. and you know, this, this is where we get cults and things like that. The, yeah, the reason I ask is because um, Aries, 1985 is the year of the ox, so I thought it had something to do with astrology, but yeah. clearly not. <laughs> no, I stole it from these um, yeah, beautiful Zen masters who left us the most incredible literature mm. and, yeah, a true pointing that if you want to find spiritual freedom, yeah, many things you can do, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely. Now, Shana, can you please tell our audiences, as well as myself, um, what is transpersonal psychology, the de- definition, and what does it mean? Um, well, transpersonal psychology, well, if you look at the word mm-hmm. transpersonal, trans is a um, yes. prefix that um, means to go beyond, so it's going beyond the person. Love it, love um, it. And Psychology itself is study of the spirit, um, but transpersonal psychology is a branch of psychology that is kind of trying to live up to its original name. Okay. Psychology was always meant to be somewhat spiritual. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And so transpersonal psychology is kind of reclaiming its more, um, you know, I mean, during the Renaissance period it was um, it considered to be the area of human endeavour that was... Um, looking at Mm. the spirit. And so with transpersonal psychology, we really believe that um, the the quest to have mystical experiences, Mm -hmm. to have non-ordinary states, um, is not only really important, Mm -hmm. one of the most important drives, um, that they're incredibly useful for healing, problem-solving. But the problems being that within psychology they have tended to pathologize mm. certain states. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, uh, there's still to this day you could go in, you could have had yep. an, a mystical experience, like an awakening, oh, yeah. and you go see a psychiatrist and they're going to give you a diagnosis Yeah. rather than honoring. Is that because they try to prove everything with science? Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Psychology has tried to affiliate itself with the medical um, the bre- bre- to be being a branch of mm-hmm. medicine, and medicine is yes very scientific, also very mechanistic, and so mm-hmm. by psychology affiliating itself with medicine, we kind of lost you know the value of the the spiritual. When did psychology become like this? 
Oh, predominantly in the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. a, a new branch of psychology called behaviorism mm -hmm. came in, um, which was very useful for understanding how um, emotions and thoughts dictate behavior. Mm -hmm. But its problem was that it was basing a lot of these findings of animal experimentation. Yes. And certainly we, while we do share a lot of experiences with the animal kingdom, things like falling in love wow. or, or, I don't know, um, even things such as poetry and art. Animals and don't fall in love. Well, I'm sure there's, but, but, but we as a species, mm -hmm. I guess we are more conscious of oh, that. Right. And, and yeah, we, we, we share many traits with, um, you know, mammals and so forth, but um, there are certainly distinct things. And maybe one aspect is, yeah, the human spirit. Yeah. So it, it was from that point in time with behaviorism becoming the dominant school of psychology mm -hmm. that we... Um, started to view the human condition and, and, and the human being as almost like a biological machine mm -hmm. that is conditioned by its environment. Um, and, and we lost a, a lot of the beauty and, and the poetry that I think belongs to. Absolutely. Um, what, who was one of your favourite psychologists from that you look up to, that you admire for his teachings back in the days? Uh, well, certainly Carl Jung. Oh, wow. Um, and so he was what, he was an early pioneer during the very infancy of Western psychology coming from Freud. Okay. Freud. He was one of, you know, the pioneers along with Freud. and um, there, there was a whole number of them. Wilhelm Reich was there. Yeah. Um, there was Adler. Oh. Um, but... Jung was really into the spiritual. So, of course, you know, I feel very affiliated with his work. I also really admire his journey. Okay. Um, and he also wouldn't, towards the end of his life, he didn't see a client or a patient without first looking at their astrology chart. Oh, wow, love that. So because I would have forced him to see me. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah. yeah, you too, nice. So, yes, he was into astrology and um, kept it under wraps um, because he didn't want to, to damage his academic reputation yes. too much. But what a shame. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yes, very much into understanding, you know, the spiritual dimensions, the unconscious um, and, and the power of symbolism. Wow, love that. Um, well, I haven't, I'm not very well versed with Freud, but what was your opinion with Freud for um, those watching? He got it right in many respects. Mm. Um, and a lot of his sexuality was back to parents, wasn't it? Issues of sexuality. Yes, sexuality. he had his libido. He was very precious about his mm. libido theory that most um, of our psychological problems were based upon some kind of um, complex around our, our sexuality. Um, but he was very affiliated with like Newtonian yeah. notions and, and was quite mechanistic. He, he, he hated that Jung was so um, spiritual. In fact, it was part of the reason they kind of parted ways. Um, and Jung uh, became like the outcast um, a member of the psychoanalytical mm. community because of his insistence mm -hmm. of wanting to um, honour the spiritual Absolutely. and Freud wasn't for that. So. But I think I definitely like Jung more. Yes, I think. Yeah, one thing, um, one thing that I'm going to say is I haven't studied Freud too much and I will, but um, 
One thing that I remember is when I was little, my mum used to, she's my mum, she was young, she used to go to the bathroom and leave the door open sometimes. I really did not like seeing her nude in any capacity, even in the shower. Sometimes as an adult, I've had flashbacks and it makes me feel very uncomfortable. So I'd love to just dwell, dwell deep into that one day to see why it bothers me. Yeah. Why would that bother me or a child? Well, I guess that's one thing that Freud did mention, yes. that the exposure to sexuality around the... Um, three to seven years of age, yeah. um, seeing the opposite sex genitals and your, your parents um, could certainly create so many um, different, you know, neurotic tendencies, yes. even toilet training. Yes. If toilet training is not handled very well, but, um, yeah, you can mm. um, perhaps be years later having to explore <laughs> what's yeah. going on in that period of your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. There's definitely a trigger there. So for my own self-discovery and because I love psychology, I'm going to go deeper into it. Um, so the next question is you said that from the transpersonal perspective the manifestations of symptoms so you said that from the transpersonal perspective the manifestation of symptoms are often best understood as marking as marking the beginning of a healing process rather than the beginning of a disease or disorder can we talk about this please that's a bit of a long one sorry guys yeah well I think that's one of the problems with how mechanistic psychology is is that we see the symptom as being something to get rid of rather than seeing the symptom as perhaps signifying something that needs our attention. Mm-hmm. And and so um, in many ways... Give us an example. Well, uh, I think even depression mm. often, you know, when we go into these deep contractions when we're not yeah. living the life we're meant to be living and then we kind of go into a shutdown or the old-fashioned existential crisis, mm-hmm. yeah, and and these are not fun times to go through, yeah. but I think they, they represent a part of your unconscious asking for a radical upgrade, mm-hmm. asking for you to address certain aspects of your life that um, need more attention and, and, and not working against this as much as mainstream psychology has this belief. Sure. So hence why you said that the manifestation of symptoms are often best understood as marking marking the beginning of a healing process. So if we see it as a healing process and something that, that could be a positive yes. rather than negative and an ending, that's yes. good. Yeah, for the most part. Mm. I mean, look, you know, there's yeah. certain, you know, psychiatric conditions that are, you know, devastating yeah. to the individual, but particularly with the mood disorders, anxiety, depression, um, it may well, we're starting to see how many of our you know most troubling psychological um, issues are usually based on unresolved business from our past yeah. things that have happened in childhood even just the stress of living in the modern world oh, yeah. um, and and our body mind systems are really good at showing us where we need to move and shift and, and the symptoms take us right to that place Obviously, then you need to engage in some kind of process that usually um, goes right to, tries to understand the background Mm -hmm. of the symptom. Um, Go to the core. Yeah, to go to the core, to see what is facilitating it. And that's where with psychology, a lot of mainstream psychology and particularly particularly psychiatry is all about repressing Mm. the symptom. Yeah. And it's certainly a time and place for that. I'm not yeah. anti, um, you know, psychotropic um, or pharmaceutical yeah. supports when need be. But yeah. sometimes, yeah, you're really blocking um, an individual being able to, 
you know, come to really heal and transform. To self-reflect and heal. Private conversation I had with Shana when I got here, I asked her a simple question. She goes, it's okay. Um, feel it. Stop suppressing. Because I was suppressing and saying, nah, I don't care. You do care because it's on your mind. So one thing I want to do is start feeling my feelings in regards to certain things. Yes. If yeah. nothing else you take from the oh, interview. Oh, there's yeah. so much I take from this. Um, what is, I've recently come across the word somatic. What is somatic psychotherapy, please? Ah, well, somatic yes. psychotherapy is a form of psychotherapy that really understands that the body holds the problem. Um, even a lot of our character defences are not just governed by the mind but are, you know, um, set deeply mm. in our body. Um, but, but it's also a form of therapy that uses the body to access, you know, a kind of inner healing um, process. Mm-hmm. It's been around, you know, traditionally somatic psychotherapy has been around, you know, since the early 1900s in the Western tradition. But Mm -hmm. I think we need to honour the fact that, you know, for thousands of years in the Eastern and shamanic um, traditions, that connection between the body-mind has always been honoured. We've been slow to come to the party in the West. But... um, we're in this great age of somatic psychotherapy due to the neuroscience. Wow. The neuroscience has really helped refine and confirm not only our own how we store trauma in our body, but also our neuroplasticity, our ability to really transcend and move out of limited perspectives that are held mentally and physically. Sure. Would you be able to give um, our listeners an example of what you do when it comes to somatic healing? Um, How that looks, what that's like well, for the visual people. Well, it's really about going into the problem, as I said, in a very guided way. Um, often we need to experience, uh, like have a situation where there's some kind of re-experiencing of the traumatic um, event or what's really ailing us emotionally. We're like going to the emotional disturbance and re-experiencing it, often even needing to amplify it um, by just simply focusing on it. Um, And then we see if we can guide ways, and it usually can happen quite spontaneously, by just focusing on the problem. There can be this spontaneous release. I've got um, something to say. So the other night I was at home and I started thinking about something that was triggering, what we spoke about before. I started shaking. This shaking was a familiar thing I've done in the past. And I wanted to, I was brave enough in that moment to try to be quiet and listen to why my body's shaking. And due to another healer or spiritual person I spoke to, she had said, be kind to your body, listen to your body. So that's the first time I try to do that. And I said to my body, what's wrong? Why are you shaking? But I wasn't able to get the answer. Why do you think that occurred? Why would my body start shaking at the thought of that trigger? Well, it, often, in mm. fact, when I'm do, when people are releasing trauma from their body, wow. there's the, this spontaneous tremoring, we call them neurogenic tremors, will occur. And, and so that can be, you know, a, a really beneficial kind mm. of release. But a lot of times it's the, the, the body's just in a, in a sympathetic fight-flight mm. mode. And, of course, it's even with people with anxiety yes. will often have shaking hands. And the fight-flight um, mechanism of our nervous system is all about bringing energy to the hands, the feet, um, certainly speeding up the, the heart rate mm-hmm. so um, blood can go to the extremities of the body. 
And so this is where, yeah, when we're in a state of anxiety for a considerable period of time or going through a stressful situation. So it's just stress and anxiety in a situation like that where the client starts stressing about it and shaking hard. Yes. Uh I guess I would distinguish between one where it's a kind of default setting that the nervous system's in, but certainly I... A lot of times when I'm doing like process-oriented work, the shaking is a really beautiful uh, manifestation of things kind of being Mm -hmm. released, coming out. So it's good that I allowed myself to shake. Yeah, I think so. Fantastic. You mentioned neuroplasticity. Very interesting. I can't remember what it means, but I remember about five years ago I was studying neuroplasticity for a little while, maybe about a week I was into it. Can you remind our – can you tell our viewers what is neuroplasticity? Well, I'm not so well-versed in the neuroscience, but Mm. I must say, but uh, I guess the biggest gift we've gained from understanding a little bit more Mm. of the brain um, is to come to now understand that um, the brain can heal itself. And even when we've had neural pathways, the old, you know, the the neuroscience saying is, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together and create neural pathways. Um, that that can be related to going into emotional states, um, perpetuating addictions. Um, And yet we now can see we we do have the technologies to Mm -hmm. shift that um, and create new neural pathways. Dr. Joe Dispenza speaks a lot about this. Could you give us one example of neuroplasticity at work, how someone is trying to fix themselves, create new neural pathways? One example. Um, one very simple way is phobias. Mm. Okay, so with a phobia, there's a, a stimulus that is setting off, you know, a very heightened trigger. Response. And so we now have the techniques. One, for example, is EMDR, eye ah, movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's just having the person while the um, thinking of like, let's say their phobia is of dogs, they're thinking about a dog, they're allowing themselves to react a little bit and then you just get their eyes to move from left to right and it just brings in new information and kind of acts as a short circuit mm-hmm. and then suddenly the, you kind of desensitise the response and over time, mostly, it, it, it almost always works. After at least it may take a few sessions, suddenly the, the presence of a dog that. is not true. Do you offer that to clients? Yes. Wow, yes. guys. So if you're in Melbourne, hit her up. Yes, you... I've been I'm processing a lot of people's, because of the vaccination, yes. people's yes. needle phobias. Oh, have been, a lot of people have had oh, interesting. Um, phobias around mm-hmm. syringes. It's surprisingly common. So. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Shana, what does transpersonal psychology mean? And I apologise for asking such standard questions, but what does that mean? Um, Well, it's a very all-encompassing branch Mm -hmm. of psychology. Um, It includes all the major schools of psychology, Mm -hmm. but with one fundamental um, distinction, it really emphasises the importance of the spiritual dimension and and w- was based upon a discovery that um, there's many drives within the human individual individual, but the, the the drive to have a mystical experience is one of the um, strongest drives we as human beings have. And so transpersonal psychology really emphasizes the importance of that, 
and and has done so also to um, address a problem that exists within psychology that many um, non-ordinary states of consciousness, be it spiritual awakening um, or having, you know, entering into a state of consciousness that is is not so ordinary. Um, so transpersonal psychology welcomes the mystical and the yes. everything else. And, and, and really highlights that it shouldn't be pathologized. Absolutely. There are times and places where even what can look like a psychotic episode, not always, but sometimes it can be incredibly useful for the person in, in their um, integration of it. Yeah. Would you like to hear my random thesis as a non-psychologist? My <laughs> intuitive thesis is that schizophrenia is different entities communicating with a person. Have you ever thought that way or no? Oh, that one's a mysterious condition. But um, I have heard it said, you know, in, in cultures around the world where the person with having a psychotic, what appears to be a psychotic episode, is really supported by the tribe. Mm. Like there's places, I think, in um, Zulu tribes if someone becomes psychotic, they, they almost give them a microphone and a stage and the whole tribe supports them and, and trusts that they're tapping into other realities. Yeah. And in the... the uh, it's just not always a positive reality, I don't believe. Not always, but it's like almost like they're tuning into different radio stations. I mean, I, I don't want to um, minimise how devastating yes. this disorder yes. is, and but there is... At times, as a subcategory, it's been in transpersonal psychology, we call it spiritual mm. emergency. It's just a, a subcategory. Many people have um, been through this experience where, yes, they had, you know, reality kind of collapse on them, but some profoundly useful information came in and they described feeling completely transformed mm. by the experience. They recovered? They came back? Yes, to, yes. Wow. And, and, um, yeah, really felt that they came to be a better, a more integrated person, not despite that experience, but truly mm. because of it. Um, I was on the internet a little while ago and I was reading blogs for some unknown reason in regards to people who were going through that um, mm. or something similar to that. And they were saying that they were getting um, messages and that they follow them from the messages and they'd find, they'd, the message would say, go over here, you'll see this. And they just kept constantly getting mes the messages and it was true. Wherever they go, they find whatever else they were meant mm -hmm. to find. Hence why that valid, um, validated what I was thinking. But as Shana says, I've got, there is no, I've got no rock solid opinion, obviously. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the principles, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Ad Advaita Vedanta. Or non-duality as some call it, please. Ah, well, this is mm. a very ancient spiritual tradition that mm. predates Buddhism. I think it goes back all the way back to 800 BC. And, um, and, and the word Advaita Vedanta means, um, Advaita Vedanta means, um, it's, it's trying to describe that this reality is at one. It's all it's one. one. Love that. Interconnected but, 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 but it But it says so in such a way that it's one without a second. Mm. And I love the principles um, as much as I'm not a scholar yes. of this, um, this spiritual philosophy. Much like Buddhism, I think it has some really sophisticated um, practices and means of um, being able to... Does Deepak Trans Chopra follow this or no? I, I dare say, okay, yes. Sure. It, um, transcend one's own suffering. It, it reduces suffering down 
to a fundamental problem with misidentification as yourself, as the body, mind, ego, where in fact who you really are is Brahman, part of this mm. feeling of oneness. I know, but unfortunately we are in this physical vessel, so we do. How can you identify as nothing so hard? Well, this is right. And and yet, you know, as much as it, um, the illusion of us um, being the person seems very persistent, yes. um, it, it one can seem to see beyond it. And, and often our suffering is an opportunity to go beyond that mm-hmm. because often what we are suffering isn't in our immediate – it's not in the situation. It's in our conceptualization of yes. the situation. Um, it's not – our emotions and our sensations. So are we supposed to just be the observer, Shana, according to them, just the observers? It's not it, – it doesn't really even matter whether you adopt the observing position mm-hmm. to who you really are mm-hmm. is what it would say. Um, but if there is a thirst to really go beyond the illusion, um, it, it points out <laughs> some pretty nice ways. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's a simple, eloquent kind of philosophy, much like very similar to Buddhism. Okay. So what would life look like for one that practices that? Um, well, I think it's travelling a hell of a lot lighter, probably wow. not feeling so insecure. Wow. Um, of course, people think, oh, well, if I adopt this, you know, this um, perspective, I'm not going to be able to pay the bills, I'm not going to be able to run my business or be a good parent. But paradoxically, I think um, we can come to live in a more spontaneous way and and um, have more effective coping skills mm. um, because I think we the, the, our survival instincts are built in. It's just that our mind is continually, continually um, claiming ownership for it. Yeah, um, I love philosophy. So when I ask you a philosophy question, or maybe it's still psychology, I'm not sure, but if I was practicing that, when I'm looking at you, what am I seeing? Am I seeing myself or another human being? Am I seeing myself or another human being? Um, what do they believe? Well, in, in this philosophy, yes. you and I are one. So oh. when you and I are looking into each other's eyes, I like we're, that kind of looking into a mirror, Mm. we're looking into an aspect of ourselves and what has us believe we're separate is merely a concept where if we drop the thought, you would see that where your awareness begins and ends, we can't find it and even though we may seem like we're in the skin, that's not how it actually feels when you're in a place of beingness. If we drop the if you you drop the story of Letitia and I drop the story of Shana, there is actually a very distinct feeling of a unified mm-hmm. field of consciousness of awareness you could call it that exists in the body and in the space outside of the body. Yes. <laughs> it can be very comforting or uncomfortable depending on where you're at. But another uh, metaphor would be we're all the ocean. We are from the ocean and she's just one drop and I'm a drop. We're yeah. waves, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I find this com- comforting, but the only question that comes to mind when we spoke about that, that is sexuality. So how would someone in an intimate relationship with those belief systems um, treat sexuality if, you know, it's a good one, isn't it? Well, yes. I think conceivably it would create a greater sense oh, wow. of union. Maybe that's where... But are you yes. being in union with yourself because you're one? Is there any excitement? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's probably a little narcissistic. <laughs> it's a you're, making, you're making love with yourself. Mm. But, I, I mean, yeah, I think the more 
you're out of your own um, ego-oriented perspective, I think the more you can come into a union with someone and drop your defences and and really merge with them. Mm -hmm. This is very deep and I'll probably have to ponder this for about a week and rewind, Mm -hmm. but on another note, a thought that came to mind was, um, at this stage, I feel as though, and I don't know what this means. Um, I feel excitement when I think when I, I feel excited by thinking of someone as the other, not as one. So I'm not sure what that means. I guess it. Um, I guess it would mean that my world would cr- come crashing down if I realized that Shana's not really her own person. We're all just one. How does that even work? Philosophy one one. I know, and it's all very paradoxical. Yes. This philosophy. It's almost like well, it's both. It's both that you're the uh, we're both separate people and separate but one but separate but one bizarre and interesting exactly awesome mm-hmm. moving on to the next question there is a lot of talk about shadow work I'm not familiar with shadow work I've heard things about shadow work I'm like can you please tell us what's going on with shadow work these days <laughs> yeah I know what does it this is, mean it is um, yeah getting thrown around. Shadow work is really, in essence, addressing repressed emotions, negative feelings um, that have usually come um, due to our history mm. um, and and really are the places within ourselves we don't want to look. Mm. And the reason it seems so important and that we almost have a social, Jung described us having a social responsibility mm. to address the parts of ourselves we disown because of the problem um, due to the fact that it will lead to you projecting those qualities outside of you if you don't. Please explain. So whatever we don't Mm -hmm. hate in ourselves, whatever we dislike dislike or repress Mm -hmm. in ourselves, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the, the, the unconscious has a very clever way of not allowing it to remove itself from your awareness. So it will instead cross the self-boundary and then appear as the things outside of you that you really trigger you. So I don't like judgmental people, but then I judge sometimes. Is this, that it? This aspect, yes, it can represent a quality that you've, um, you actually are demonstrating and possessing mm-hmm. And, and so that's why you don't, um, you know, you see, normal, you see a strange. part of yourself. But oftentimes it's you've repressed it. You, you, you were taught somewhere for I was life. judged, so I don't like it. So I found that's a, not a nice quality. So yes, how so would you, that manifest you disowned it? your own um, faculty of judgment. Oh, no. And so that's why you you don't permit yourself to Sometimes. be judgmental. And so when you see someone else being judgmental, it, it um, yeah, it, it brings up a, a trigger. And yet judgment's a good example because, um, well, because I think it is a fundamental survival strategy. I got, I got lost in all that you said because I'm new to this concept. Would that make, mean I haven't made good judgments in the past when it comes to people because I've been trying to not be judgmental? Yes, this got is, it. This is what got my, it. Uh, I've been often coaching clients on the fact that uh, we've been conditioned to believe you're not allowed to judge a book by its cover, yes. give people the benefit of the doubt. But what that robs us from... You're an instinct. Our, our, in, yeah, our instinct and our intuition that actually may not like one aspect of the person and should really, when I, when I talk to um, clients who have gotten into abusive relationships, yeah. I often ask them, what's your first reaction to that person? 
and often they'll go, oh, I couldn't stand them and um, I really, you know, there, there was something really off-putting about them. But then I thought about the fact that he or she had a job. The logical they were, mind. So the mind was mm -hmm. what, you know, created um, the, the dysfunctional um, instinct, mm -hmm. whereas the body was far more reliable by, by so yeah, you, you ought to be allowing yourself to be more gentle. I will be, I'll be taking that on board. For those of, we're still learning, one more example of someone doing shadow work. Please explain one more example. Um, oh, there's so many mm. ways, but um, one thing. Well, I think psychedelic therapies are a very sure way to be addressing certain aspects, mm. you know, because you go so deep within your unconscious and not only are we exposed in psychedelic work with our what we call the higher unconscious or the higher self, so that's where it can be, you know, really having transcendental kind of um, blissful, um, exalted feelings. Are you supposed to see your negative traits or things you're scared of? But it also will bring to the surface ah. the, the shadow material. And, um, and in fact, I think that's um, something that... Um, people are not so aware of with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics are um, non-specific amplifiers. So they amplify both aspects of the unconscious, mm -hmm. the shadow self or the lower self and the higher self or the higher unconscious. Interesting. I'm going to put a crazy example out there because it's the first thing that came to mind. Apologies, guys. What if someone has a shadow side where, um, I really don't like these examples, too dark. Let me just change it for a sec. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Um, well, can I give you an, yes, a very good example, yes, one that I often um, use to help explain um, the, the, the shadow, repress yeah. shadow. Homophobia, when people ah. are really homophobic around people, um, gay communities. It's because they're scared of being gay. Because we all have a natural slight <laughs> aspect of homosexuality mm -hmm. to us. And it's due to the fierce rejection of that within ourselves mm. that we find it so uncomfortable outside of ourselves. Sure. Thank you for explaining. Appreciate okay. it. I find women attractive. I know when a woman's attractive, but so far I've found that I don't crave physical intimacy with women, but I find them very attractive. Maybe if yeah. we went down that path, I could potentially um, one day find someone, you know, that I want to be intimate with with a woman because I like to stay open-minded, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I just want to share that, guys. Well, yeah, Ben, because yeah. you're aware of that part of yourself, I can mm. – it's unlikely that you would be. They <laughs> oh, <laughs> know that about you. Yeah. You're not homophobic. Um, but that's oh, just one yeah, example. Yeah. you got to assume with the shadow that whatever whatever you really despise, yes. the or whatever really you feel so strongly about, often the opposite is true as well. So, Interesting. Um, there's an old um, proverb mm. that explains it. It, it. it says, I looked and looked and this I came to see, mm -hmm. that what I thought was you and you was really me and me. Love that. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> that's, um, a lot of, um, that's just a lot to ponder over there, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> Um, I saw an article that you wrote in regards to the inner authority tool. I haven't had time to read that. I've added that to my read later. The inner authority tool was um, created by Dr. Phil Stutz, um, who specializes in helping people overcome insecurity and shine in the entertainment industry in Hollywood or something along those lines. 
you must have come across the read about the authority yes. tool. What is that about, and how can it help people get over anxiety insecurities? Okay, so yeah. Phil Stutz is a psychiatrist mm-hmm. who is big in Hollywood. He's kind of infamous in Hollywood. He works with actors, and he's um, he's he's quite. Um, He's very controversial in many ways because he's quite hard-hitting with his client. He's all about, you know, he often tells his um, patients, you know, to stop being a fucking baby. But he understands the shadow and he's come up with techniques to help people in that tough industry of Hollywood Mm. to um, avoid self-sabotage by embracing the shadow rather than rejecting it. And so the inner authority tool is where Mm. let's say you've got an audition and you have all these insecurities within you i'm not going to be pretty enough they're not going to want me i'm going to get rejected and rather than trying to push those feelings away you create a an embodiment an Mm -hmm. imagined embodiment of that part of yourself and you know it's going to be your despicable most despicable features in some kind of mm-hmm. imagined figure and you take that part of yourself to the audition um, and you make it a secret agreement with that part of yourself, your shadow self, that... You're going to go away for a second? No, that wow. you and you and the shadow are, are in it together. That's fierce. Because by doing so, you, you're going to be um, much more centred within yourself, Okay. more authentic. And you're going to be actually showing up in a less defensive way and therefore less likely to sabotage yourself. Okay. I, I can't imagine at this very moment how that would be. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to try to implement it. The first thing that comes to mind was no way. I thought I'd have to separate it. Agreement. Hey, you move over, move over there for a second. You can come back later. <laughs> yeah, it's a paradox. But the more you try to disown these parts of yourself, it, it, the, the less you compassionate you are to yourself. Okay. And the less compassionate you are to others. I believe it. No matter who we are, we all have such fundamental, um, humane um, characteristics and imperfections. Uh, and we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And if you can't have, um, if you can't embrace that, you're in real trouble, I believe. I'm putting you on the spot, but is there anything you remember from his book or his watching him um, that stands out to you? An example of him helping a client embody that? Is there oh, anything that you a, remember? Not really. It's a long time. I'll go through it. But I use it. I used to use it when I was first a psychologist, and I was um, diagnosed with learning difficulties. So in primary school, and so I would, if I ever felt insecure in a session and felt, you know, that old defectiveness Uh um, scheme come up, I'd connect with little Shana who, Mm -hmm. and and instead of trying to push her for awareness, it was inviting her in. Do what? Just hang out with you? Yeah, to be, and so that I could be, and, and be more conscious of her because by being unconscious of her, that's going to perhaps lead to me pretending to be an all-knowing ah. psychologist and coming across okay. arrogant. So, so in, inviting it makes you more there, more real, more real, like empathetic, less yeah. defensive, as you said. Now I get it. Yeah, more conscious. You're just more conscious, so you're less likely to be acting from an unconscious okay. uh, mindset. So, paradoxically, less likely to screw up. 
um, and more likely to you know, be able to connect well hmm. and be authentic. And so if anybody wants to try that at home, just invite your insecurities in and be like, yeah, it's okay, you're welcome, and continue on with the goal. Is that correct? That's, that's indeed. We'll that's try right. that and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, in, the, in the comments, guys, drop it below how you feel about that. And um, hopefully when I connect with Shana again in three, four months, if I can stalk her, I'll let you know how it went <laughs> when I've done that. Can we please talk about the consequences of early childhood trauma and abuse and how this manifests into life? It's a broad question, but can we, there's a lot of people out there who are not self-aware, who do no work, they don't, they don't, they're not even aware of psychology. How does early childhood manifest into your adulthood? Why would, yeah, yeah. Uh, in many, many Absolutely. different ways. But I often have, it strikes me as one of the most unfair um, principles or facts of um, life as a human that if you don't get your needs met very early on, if you're not given the love or um, uh, you, you grow up in really tough um, soil to grow from, that there is a tendency for that to feel, um, create like a pattern that is very hard to shift from. If you didn't get your needs met as a child, it, it's likely that it's going to become um, harder to get mm -hmm. your needs met, met as an adult. Um, and so that's due to how much it can dysregulate the nervous mm -hmm. system. Um, our, even the science is showing, you know, when you've been around a lot of um, unsafety as a child, your nervous system's ability to read um, safety mm -hmm. and danger gets really dysregulated mm -hmm. And therefore, you're more likely to go into compromising yeah. situations, even not having appropriate boundaries mm -hmm. and so forth. And that's the tragic thing. Trauma begets trauma. Mm -hmm. Unbelievably, though, um, that's not the end of the story. We're starting to see trauma in some instances can be the greatest catalyst for spiritual awakening. Or I even know myself, some of my closest friends or the people I admire the most have had the toughest background. Rumi, an awesome philosopher, um, had a quote, um, the darkness is where the light comes in. Exactly. And one night I was watching an awesome movie directed by some Hollywood, Indian or Hollywood director, and I was captivated by that quote and why this whole movie was based on the damaged ones are the golden ones. Yes. So I went down that path. I wasn't able to figure out for a few months, were you able to ever figure out why Rumi came out with that quote, tying it to our mystical and psychological well in, well, in fact, this is the new way. We're in this wave of psychology, which is all about somatic, the, the yeah. somatics. But the more you go into the somatic work, the more you do the inner work, the more you access the transpersonal domains. Mm -hmm. And we've even had recently one of the highest figures in the somatic psychotherapy world, um, Peter Levine, who's got a very medical background, very academic. Mm -hmm. He started to um, come out and say, Trauma is often the catalyst for spiritual awakening. Absolutely. And it's almost like it, it's an opportunity through deep, deep suffering, and I'm not wanting to sugarcoat it because trauma can be beauty an absolute, in it. but the trauma can be absolutely devastating yeah, for an okay. individual, but it can be the catalyst for really evolving. Um, I don't know, one just has to slay those dragons and, yeah. and there's often a pot of gold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as Shana said, obviously um, some, some traumatic experiences can be really traumatising, but for um, some of us, um, trauma definitely did make us more artistic and poetic and we created our best work 
from those traumatic yeah. events. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Jung, Jung would say it like this, the gift is right next to the wound. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That was deep. <laughs> love that. You also mentioned there, that there is no evidence of a certain hollow, hollow, holonomic Spurs mind network mm. um, with incredible heuristic conscious altering potential. You mentioned that there is something. Can you? This wasn't a blog article. Please talk <laughs> about this subject as I'm completely new to it. Well, I guess yeah. We've the we're in this incredible age with yeah. the neuroscience. Neuroscience, yes, and also quantum relativistic physics comes into it to understand this body mind system is like a hologram, and it it belongs as an individual separate um, mechanism, but it is connected with a, a much larger nest of beings. And within that interface, we're coming to see that there is just the most miraculous ability to access, and this sounds outlandish, mm, but when I, when I say this, um, it has been empirically proven, the individual consciousness, it, ha it has been confirmed that it is connected with a collective unconscious, um, meaning the 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 entirety of human civilization's history, every lived experience within the cosmos is somehow embedded within the individual consciousness. Mm -hmm. And at that interface, you have the most extraordinary um, healing um, potential at your back. Um, and it's through um, certain um, academic um, inquiries, schools of inquiry such as, as I said, quantum mm -hmm. physics, modern consciousness research, um, these experiential psychotherapies, psychedelic research. We've, we've actually come to confirm these are not just new age. Obviously, new, yeah. Nice. I guess it's good that we've come to confirm that. Yeah, this is right. Is there an example? I know it's a broad subject. Is there any example you can put out there for the audience that's really curious about this or is this too much to well, cover? One of my teachers, Stanislav mm -hmm. Groff, he described in breathwork, breathwork <sighs> is an incredible vehicle for accessing things coming from the collective consciousness um, and accessing the transpersonal domain. And he, I've seen it myself, but he really came up to collect so many case studies of um, people coming through these experiences to um be able to describe pieces of information that they could not have gotten anywhere else. And one example was um, during a breath work, a woman felt she entered into the experience of being a mother whale giving birth to the, the, the cub um, whale. That. And she described it in intricate detail, really felt she was the whale. And she was no marine biologist, but when she described it, and then the Stan Groff, um, the founder of Breathwork, he looked into how whales actually birth and was struck at how incredibly accurate, mm -hmm. even to the point she said the baby cub came out tail first. Now, this seems very counterintuitive. She One could say that she's watched a documentary and she can't remember. One could say that, mm -hmm. um, and yet it didn't seem, and this is the thing mm -hmm. about this kind of, it's all very um, 
you know, yeah, it's only through the collation mm-hmm. of these kind of um, non-ordinary states of experiences we can all often be sceptical, um, but there's certainly been times where it's been proven that the individual really couldn't have gained that access mm-hmm. anywhere else. I actually um, intuitively believe we are all interconnected, so that's um, one train of thought I'd love to go down in one area that I'd love to study and figure out. Yes. Definitely. So interesting. Um, the next question I was going to ask you was about breath work. Only the, the last few months I came across breath work because I've, I've been a very highly functioning anxiety person, person with anxiety for 15 to 20 years, 15 years. Um, so breath work. Where did breath work start? You just mentioned name and what can breath work do for people and, and I've got a few questions after that. Um, well, I think breath work's been around for a very yeah. long time. I mean, mainstream society is only now talking about yeah, it. Yeah, and yet the yoga, the yogis, and the they Chinese medicine—I'm sure—in shamanic, probably even in the yeah. indigenous of this country, have used some form of breath work without, um, without a doubt. Have we forgotten to breathe as a, <laughs> as a society? I dare say we have. I think, you know, in that high stress state and our kind of contraction against life, mm. I, I don't think we're breathing all that well. But breathwork is, to, to my mind, one of the most incredible therapeutic modalities there is. Um, I feel like you can do the most effective trauma work because it creates such an, it's such an incredible vehicle for the body being able to figure out a way to release trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also where we access the transpersonal domains, where we can go into spiritual experiences, breath work. Um, certain forms of breath work seem consistently to create a situation that is um, strikingly similar to psychedelic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so quite extraordinary. Um, but, yeah, so. Shana, there's a lot of people offering six-week courses online, and I know that I know that's an insult in many different industries. When you come across a six-week program, we spoke about the pros and the cons, which were mainly the cons to last week about how things can go wrong. People can have episodes, um, things can occur, and you want to make sure that you're fully qualified to take over someone, take care of someone in these instances. What can occur during breath work, please? Well, yes, this has been a concern for me because breathwork is one of the most powerful modalities there is and can take people into states of consciousness yeah. um, that are very far beyond what the, the, the everyday consciousness. So um, it, you really want to have facilitators that mm-hmm. are able to be efficient guides and, and really be able to manage any safety concerns mm-hmm. um, in order to do that um, incredibly safely. The dangers can be sometimes um, that you really open up the portals into another dimension um, and you, yeah, have trouble integrating that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you come back and you're shook. Yeah, you're shook or, or you're stuck in a kind of mindset that you can't quite. It, it's very unusual. It's like an asset experience or LCD experience. Yeah, wow, that's so, so that's where then. we sometimes need a hell of a lot of support after a breath work. Breathwork is not suitable for people who have had any recent um, manic episodes or psychotic mm-hmm. episodes um, because they can really just expand that consciousness um, and exponentially and, and accentuate those symptoms. Um, so there are, yeah, and even certain medical conditions, there's certain heart problems. And there's a lot. There's a lot. So you, my training was with um, someone who was – psychiatrist who had quite a Mm. medical training 
Um, and that's where I, I was grateful in my training that there was so much emphasis on the safety mm. and and really making sure that you eliminated all risk factors, well, which I don't yeah. think uh, done with all modalities. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully you're a psychologist and lucky that you're a psychologist. You put in the hard work and you study so many different things because um, I really wanted to study breath work. But unfortunately, I'm not the type that wants to study five, six years. I'm doing so many different things online. Yes. But if I, I would have loved to do breath work and offer breath work, firstly for myself. Secondly, I think it's really valuable. Mm. But judging by what you say, it's, you can't do a six-week thing. Don't bother. Mm-hmm. You really got to go deep down into it. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I think there's forms of breath work, like Wim Hof is a form of breath oh, work. Yeah. That is and a he goes to- deep into it too he's been practicing for years yes and his is a shorter form of breath work where you do like three cycles my mine what i did is like you know lying on a mattress and breathing hyperventilating for two and a half hours wow. so there are forms of breath work which maybe would be um yeah safer or more um appropriate to do in a like as a shorter mm-hmm. training it's just the ones that really take you into very strong non-ordinary states of consciousness that you probably want a very thorough training. I think I'm just going to do a couple of sessions with you in the future and just focus on my businesses instead because I don't have one or two years to, or even longer to invest to that. You know, yeah. I've got enough on my plate. Yeah, yeah. I think you found your calling anyway. You're out there promoting and, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't know whether it's my calling or not, but we're definitely going to talk about that because that's part of the questions I've got for you. Okay. Um, Shana, yeah. can you please, if possible, show us a... Um, an example of what breath work for anybody who deals with anxiety and is breathing shallow on a daily basis. Is there something simple that they can take from this and start doing here with us? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be like the kind of breath work I've just talked about, no. but often when we're anxious, yes. we're, we're, the energy is really up into our chest. So what I really suggest, and if you'd like to <laughs> do it with me, I'd love to. Putting your hands on your belly. <sighs> And just imagine trying to bring the energy from the chest down to the belly while similarly breathing. Close your eyes, guys. Very intentionally into the belly and accentuating the movement of the belly of the, the belly going out mm. on the inhale and coming in mm. on the exhale. Feels great. But you can't do this in public, can you, unless you open your eyes? Well, you could just um, just begin focusing on bringing the breath down to the belly in public. Yes, you don't have to have your eyes closed. But then also I suggest that not only you accentuate the movement in the belly, but you try to lengthen the exhale. Really slowing down the exhale. Slowing down the exhale. Stomach's supposed to go in on the exhale, isn't it? Uh, in on the, yeah, on the exhale. And out on the inhale. And drop your shoulders or relax. Yeah, it's like almost you wanting to, and sometimes then I say bring it now down to the perineum, which is where the base chakra between the sexual organs and the anus. And same thing, breathing into that space in the pelvic floor and feeling the expansion on the in-breath. A slight contraction on the out breath, and it's just a way of also now grounding the energy. So breathing all the way in, taking the energy in all the way down. Yep, and and breathing. Imagine that breath going to your perineum, right at the centre of your pelvic floor, and and connected with our base chakra, which is where our sense of security, belonging, 
feeling connected to the ground is coming from <clears throat> and often in you know heightened states we're often now in our heads aren't we mm-hmm. so it's about grounding the energy and slowing it down and bringing the breath from the energy from the chest and, and more down to the belly okay so i'm going to be practicing that in my spare time and i hope that you guys can practice that and in the comments once you do um let us know how you found it obviously it takes a lot of mindfulness or work yeah yeah would mindfulness be the correct word, or are you supposed to let go of mind? Jesus well, Christ. I know, I agree. I think they should, go of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, it should be mindfulness, it should be mindlessness. Absolutely. I think they got it wrong with that, uh, yeah. actually. Mindfulness for, when we're, um, mindfulness for when we're trying to be kind with others, but mindlessness when yeah. we're trying to let go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Shana, I wanted to ask you about psychedelics. A lot of people are talking about psychedelics from LSD to mushrooms to acids. I personally tried one thing once in my life. It was the most horrible experience of my life which I just told you about can you tell us about the dangers of psychedelics and the alternatives well in this era of psychedelics research we're in what's been called um, the second renaissance um, moving on from the 60s where the first kind of scientific or more westernized um, psychological (laughs) research was taking place from in this era we're really understanding the need for set and setting Mm. and integration supports to be there and your experience highlighted horrific poorly handled terrible setting very um ineffectual and dangerous providers who were projecting Mm. a lot onto your experience um and yes it becomes Mm. a horror show I think psychedelics have a lot of, to promise us, and we're. Let seeing- me just jump in. What she said, um, I when I when I woke up from that experience, the first thing I said to my cousin was, "If I don't recover, I'm going to kill myself." Mm-hmm. For someone to say they're going to kill themselves, they don't recover. That's how dangerous it can be. Exactly. I didn't want to live. Exactly, yeah. and yet I don't think it was necessarily the substance, but just how it was the scene and what I set. saw. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, a lot of promises, but. Um, Unbelievably or reassuringly, we do have um, so many many techniques that can create um, these non-ordinary states of consciousness similar to psychedelics, very startlingly similar to psychedelics through the breath work particular, in particular certain meditation techniques. I've started training in kundalini yoga and can't believe how much that kind of opens one up to really mystical, blissful, wow. get kind of getting high off your breath. That would so, be awesome. So, and you'll be joining us next like Saturday for a breathwork. So maybe that will be the... Absolutely. I'll, I'll be coming to see the breathwork episodes quite soon, sessions quite soon. So I'll be recording one of them, whichever one that is um, open to being recorded because it's a private experience. Awesome. Thanks, Shana, for letting us know. So, guys, be careful before you go down the psychedelic path. Yeah, that's Try the right. things that she mentioned. Yeah, make sure the setting is right. And, yeah, Just don't do it. Try right. breath work for oh, yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> All right, so I'm very interested in astrology. I've been down that rabbit hole, and obviously you have too. You provide um, astrological. What do you provide, Shana? Um, well, I need to use astrology in the context and therapeutic astrology. Therapeutic. Please astrology. explain. Um, well, look. Mm. At first, what would be like you know, astrology is very controversial. Love and, astrology, and I'm willing to admit it shouldn't work, but it just 
Why shouldn't it work? Back well, in the days, they even the kings and queens hired astrologers. Precisely, and so it's this mysterious language. Um, the the cosmos has unbelievably given us a code, yes, in which we can understand certain um, events um, and and. Um, energies and archetypal principles that seem to be um, being experienced in one's life. The biggest misconception with astrology, I believe, is that the planets are influencing mm. us, where in fact there's just a mirroring, there's a synchronicity. Most astrologers believe it's more that what's being inscribed in the sky yeah. is simply mirroring our individual experience as above so below mm. and so what i love about astrology um is is that whatever the client my, one of my clients may be struggling with mm -hmm. i will it, it is most times that i'll be able to see with the natal chart and their transits what particular planetary archetype mm. is um, is at play and not only do I think it helps to describe in a much more poetic, um, friendly language, because as I said before, psychology uses a very mechanistic language. Mm -hmm. It's all disorders, diseases, and um, having one feel terribly um, diagnosed, diagnosed and frightened about yeah. what they're struggling with. But with astrology, yes. the, you it, said that well. It does have a poetic feel. Yeah, it's Love symbolically that. there. And it will also, yeah, give you a sense that there's a reason behind that, you know, part of your life experience is to be working with different archetypal energies, some that feel, you know, incredibly fortunate, some not so much. Are you able to know anything off the bat if I tell you my date of birth or do you need your charts and your books and things? Oh, yeah, no, um, I'd need to look at your chart and your exact time of birth. Oh, God. And we'll do that sometime. Well, what if I don't have my exact time of birth? And we, we can still look at it. There's okay. still a lot of information. We just can't look at um, the houses, so we're like, okay. Right? But yes, but you are a very Aries. Yeah. And Aries is here to be the pioneer, has a very straightforward manner, here to inspire. Yeah, and I'm glad that, you know, I'm really glad that she understands so much because I feel comfortable around her because she can understand these things. It's great when we have knowledge in all different areas because if someone doesn't, they might think, oh, the Aries is too intense, too direct, when we're not trying to be rude. It's just yeah. how we are. Well, this is right. You know, I was hungry. I said, can we go half in your cake? I don't even wait to be offered. It's just how we are. Yeah, straightforward. Yeah. I like that about Aries. Thanks. Um, yeah, that's the other thing. Astrology lends you <laughs> feeling more compassionate to others, less judgmental. You understand them more. Yeah. It's what are like you? Aquarius. Love that, okay. Very Aquarius, Aquarius, even what we doing right now yeah, is very cool. Aquarius, wow. being an a, a psychologist. And I might need an Aquarius in my life. Yeah, exactly. Because this is what I love. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm yeah. very proud of Aquarius. Love that. I once was seeing an Aquarius guy, but he wasn't deep, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. maybe my oh. cancer moon is where the depth Oh, cancer is great. Yeah. Or cancer. All right. <sighs> um, here's a question, and I'll give you a second to think about it. Why do you think someone would be struggling to find out what their purpose is and what their why is. Oftentimes, getting philosophical here, I haven't been able to figure out my why or purpose and I felt disassociated. I felt like maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm broken because everybody else seems to know what their why or their purpose mm -hmm. is. What's the answer? It's, it's a philosophical slash mainstream question and there's lots of pressure in the entrepreneurial world about this. Exactly. Well, I think one of the great, I don't know, problems of us, our Western conditioning is that we've set very early on to the on this path of to 
becoming somebody. Yes. And then we automatically feel incomplete. And it's only when we finally become somebody that we're going to, you know, feel that sense of completeness. I am a somebody. Yeah, you exist. My dichotomy is interested in a million things. I don't need to do something to become somebody. Is that the answer? Yeah, exactly. And I think what clouds our own ability to find what our purpose is or, you know, what's going to give us the greatest joy is that, um, yeah, our minds are too um, too much prone to um, being um, under the illusion of other people's ideas or held captive by other people's ideas, other people's image and success and yeah. status. Um, even what our parents may have, you know, shared with us. Well, I want to give you a, something to think about. What about people like Oprah Winfrey who talk about finding your purpose, that once you find your purpose, she talks about purpose, she believes in it. Do you think that they're just, that's just their opinion and there is no truth to it? I think there, well, Do you think there is a purpose I, in your opinion? I think there is, but I think maybe where we um, struggle is that we assume maybe the purpose that, is really going to make us happy, isn't good enough, it doesn't fit with society's, you know, no, maybe your purpose is to be a cleaner and just enjoy Or just to seek truth. To seek truth or to not, you know, improve your property portfolio. But we're under a lot of pressures from society, teachers, parents to live up to some kind of big expectation that we've got to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't we... think selling real estate or being a cleaner, even though that was an example, could ever be someone's purpose. I think that life is so much more than selling. Well, that's why And I that's like... the laughable part. Well, that's what I like about astrology because wherever your sun yeah. sign is, is going to dictate oh. your spirit's purpose. Interesting. But... Mine is actress or motivational speaker and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but I think it gets clouded when we're following another path and that's why then we we do then go into periods of you know having the old-fashioned existential crisis where we kind of lose our way right. and, and go back to the drawing board you know it's such a classic story when you you know the story of doing what your parents tell you to do and being immensely dissatisfied mm-hmm. with it and then coming back and deciding you know what I'm here to just make really great cupcakes and that's what I'm here mm-hmm. to do because yeah. I think we are creative beings, so I think we mm-hmm. all have a unique um, creation to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, yeah, we maybe need to think outside the square and maybe yeah. consult our astrology. To oh, I love that. <laughs> if anybody wants reading, hit her up, sign <laughs> her up. Um, sometimes I feel um, shame for saying that I don't know my purpose and my why. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to publicly address that. I do. So if you're also someone that feels pressure or shame when people ask you on a podcast mm-hmm. or in the entrepreneurial world, perhaps we can work towards not feeling shame. Exactly. I'm doing mul- multiple things. You know, I'm a very productive, pr- proactive person. Why do we need to feel more sh- shame on top of everything else that we already feel? Yeah, exactly. Just be, right? And we'll figure things out. Precisely. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Mm. Is um, what you do your purpose, would you say? All this stuff that you do? Yeah. Well, my Love strategy. <laughs> yeah. I think Lucky I'm you. moving out my Aquarius sun pretty well at the well, moment. Well, guess yeah. what? She's doing what she enjoys. So perhaps it's true about Go where your passion is because yeah. mine is seeking truth too. This, yeah. she asked me before, Shana, she goes, oh, am I doing okay on the interview? Because she doesn't get on many podcasts. I go, you're doing, you're doing fantastic. And she's got no idea how much I love this, how much I love this conversation because everything I'm asking her is what I'm passionate about. So if I can continue doing this right here, this is my absolute passion. Okay. <clears throat> Shana, what do you think the purpose of um, intimate relationships are? Relationships. 
Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you figured it out yet? <laughs> yeah, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I subscribe to that. It's an, um, part of, you know, looking that old, aged, uh, ancient journey of looking for your soulmate, or your, the beloved. Do you think soulmates exist? Not sure. Interesting. Um, but I think it's the search of finding the beloved within. Um, but I, I do believe that it can be the most incredible vehicle for learning deeply about yourself. Let's face it, mm-hmm. with relationships, it's where any issue that's been buried or not addressed, it's certainly going right. to be in that arena. So they are so useful for our evolutionary process. I think I've heard the Dalai Lama say that he doesn't really think he will become fully self-realized this lifetime because he hasn't um, been in relationships. Almost like he's admitting that he's kind I believe of that. he's he he hasn't done the full program. Well done to him for realizing that. Yeah, so relationships they pretty well hurt a yeah. lot of the times and um, very, get very complicated, but. Yeah, I think the opportunity is to really learn a lot about yourself and evolve through the other. Very interesting. I have nothing to add to that. I agree with you. Um, yeah, it's an interesting subject. Mm-hmm. Shana, um, there's there's a, some there's a lot going on online in the world of social media and YouTube in regards to emotionally unavailable people and fearful avoidance. I studied this subject for a little while um, because I was dealing with an emotionally unavailable or fearful avoidant person until I, discovered, until I discovered that I'm also a little bit avoidant, hence why I probably attracted an avoidant person. <laughs> so I want to ask you, and there's different degrees of fearful avoidant emotionally unavailable people. Um, have you dealt with any clients like that? Where do you think it comes from? For anyone watching this and they identify as an emotionally avoidant person who runs away from relationships when it gets hot and heavy or they're scared of being seen or whatever the case is for you guys. Firstly, I'd say those attachment theories, they've certainly Are come up into this. Well, they're a bit oversimplified. Mm. We're really fixated. I, mean, I think there's a good thing at it. In the last, I don't know, I think a book came out. And so in the last few years, I'm seeing a lot of clients come to me saying, I think I've got an insecure attachment sure. or an ambivalent attachment style. Um, and, and yet, yeah, there's a fundamental truth to them. But um, the, the, the cause is always quite different. Like even with the avoidant attachment style, it can the psychodynamics of it are it's like can be caused by dismissive par- attachment figures, mm. like perhaps a dismissive um, parental mm-hmm. figure, mother or father, or an over-involved. Mm. So it's really hard to pinpoint. That's where I think there's a little bit more nuance that needs to be um um, given to those attachment styles. But I think on a more humanistic mm-hmm. level, I think it, it, the avoidance really represents um, a, an attempt to protect your heart. Yeah. Um, in the, the archetypal psychologist James Hillman, who's mm-hmm. a huge figure in transpersonal psychology, he says true love is a broken heart. True love is a broken heart. And because the cost of love is always lost. If you fall truly, truly in love, as much as it will bring you happiness, the degree that it brings you happiness would be, by the same token, probably mm-hmm. proportionately the same degree you're going mm-hmm. to experience suffering from mm-hmm. it. Love is not easy. And I think um, in this day and age when people are really avoidant and um and, and trying to protect themselves. They just don't want to be hurt. They don't want to be hurt. And they, they, they have an instinctual sense that 
if you really become attached to someone, it, it comes at a high cost. I think we... we How doing, come I don't care about the risk of something going wrong, but others, those types will? Because you're courageous. Your heart is courageous. And, you're, and you've got that oh, capacity got within you. But yeah, I will bounce back. That's my mindset, no matter what. Exactly. So that's yeah. your... But, yeah, and it does got mean it. it's going to um, get chewed up. But, yeah, I think we're all so scared of rejection. Yes. It's the one thing as Everybody a psychologist is. that, you know, it seems or that a, a lot of these... Whatever defense mechanisms are against the experience of rejection, which unfortunately only kind of perpetuates the enactment of rejection, you know, the, the enactment of um, in trying to reject people before they reject mm -hmm. you or feeling, you know, seduced by someone and then kind of spat out um, and where, yeah, a lot of our defense mechanisms. Um, I've had a friend who was seeing a guy and um – the guy um, spends all his time with her but doesn't want to be officially with her and he doesn't open up either. So we were thinking that perhaps, you know, he's got a lot going on but also perhaps he's, um, he just says, you know, I think he's scared of getting hurt. But the point is, it's just bizarre to me. Why would you want to spend all your time with someone but not make it official? It just, does, it just doesn't make sense A to lot me. of times it is unconscious. The individual mm. themselves hasn't chosen. We don't get to choose our defence mechanisms. Ah. So Often these defences, these attachment styles are, for some people, and this is the distinction I think people, mm -hmm. rather than just knowing a, another person that you're seeing's attachment style and trying to measure your compatibility off that, it's really how much awareness and insight you have about how conscious you are of that defence mechanism. It seems to be the, the um, greatest cause for... Um, rupturing and dysfunction in relationship is when someone is completely unconscious mm. of these defences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When they're not conscious that they're even doing things that sabotage what they truly do want exactly. or what they enjoy. And sadly, that, that is a lot of people are like that. They, mm -hmm. do, they don't know. They, will, they, they are being very earnest in the initial stages of a relationship and their heart manages to open. And then all of a sudden there's just a closing off mm -hmm. and they themselves can't even tell you why that's occurred. Thank God I don't have that issue. I've got exactly. other ones but not that one. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, cool. So there's something um, very interesting that um, Shana said, the most beautiful people get rejected the most. Shana, <laughs> according to statistics or psychology, what did you say about this? Oh, okay. <laughs> I have discovered as a psychologist um, you know, when we get rejected, we always assume the, the worst-case scenarios to why we've been rejected. I'm not good enough. They didn't like the way I looked. Um, they, they think they can get someone better than me. I'm not smart enough. Whatever the reason Whatever. is for you, yeah. And yet, as a psychologist, what I am struck about is that sometimes it, it is often the people who are most emotionally intelligent, have this quality of purity and, and are really able to offer a very deep, true love wow. and, a, and a, a beautiful people. Yeah. They're the ones getting chewed up the most a lot of the time. So, um, and that is because? Because I think, as I said before, people aren't always, they don't always have the capacity to meet with someone whose intention and who's really offering true love. Mm. 
if when you're really there going, let's do this, let's let's really commit and see where this goes. They might and not be ready to receive you. They may not. That's it. That's, that's it. what it comes down to. And yet, yeah, we have to walk away just, yeah, thinking the worst things. But you're the defect. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really interesting, um, just very interesting what you said. We would have never thought that. Yeah, yeah. So it's been my one gift as a psychologist with my own history yes. of being rejected. Yes. But it's like... Actually, it's probably due to some really beautiful or evolved or valuable that you bring to the table. That that scares scares some of them off. At least I'd like to think that. I'm sure there's there's other, you know, there's always uh, probably things to Mm -hmm. contradict that. Don't ruin it for me. I'll (laughs) take that away. It's a definite. Yeah, it's a definite. So, um, Shana, you said that you need to deal with rejection. People need to deal with rejection and um, not suppress their feelings. And you went on a beautiful tangent before when you started speaking about what what comes from actually feeling your feelings. So I'll rephrase the question. Um, how do you deal with rejection? You're supposed to, you said you're supposed to feel it. Many of us suppress it. Uh, yes, well, the feeling of rejection is like a crushed flower. And when you really go into it, we're scared. We, we avoid going into it because it's like one of our deepest You don't want to feel your bad feelings. I know. It's, it feels like the deepest wound. But when you really attend to it, you get this beautiful reflection back of yourself because usually it's highlighting your care for the situation. Like if you've had a three-year relationship and suddenly the person's left you, then, then your heart bleeding over the situation is actually showing you how much you've loved the other person. It's even also conveying your self-love in a strange way. Mm. Um, and I also think you go deep enough into that, you usually understand why, you, you know, someone may have hurt you because of their lack of capacity to love, as we were saying before. I really believe in the notion that hurt people hurt people and when we go into our hurt we kind of can see that yeah the the cost of really being able to care for another person it ain't for cowards Mm -hmm. and and if you've got that capacity to feel a broken heart well um, despite how agonizing it is it's it's, beautiful it's beautiful it's your greatest gift absolutely love means it means you love to love well is to to live in service to a broken, broken heart. I think I'm definitely a poet because I think what what point is there to life if there is no love? Exactly, precisely. Absolutely. But it's not easy. And, and, and the, the reason love is profound because it isn't easy, wow. because it does result in pain. That's why if it was easy, it wouldn't be profound. Mm-hmm. Exactly it's because right. it is so life-threatening and dangerous and the stakes are so high. And that to love is always going to cause as, um, the same degree of suffering. That's why it's profound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for anybody dealing with some heartache at the moment, dealing with rejection or dealing with someone who didn't want them or feeling blue, what is something that you can say to them for, to feel their feelings rather than doing what they do, which is suppress and say, no, I'm fine? I would suggest that they take a moment to really just find the most vulnerable sensation that they have in their body related to to that situation and to really just go in with like a non-conceptual awareness. Most of our problems um, stem from a lot of our problems that stem from us just manipulating our inner experience, poking our inner experience with our mind rather than 
actually letting it speak for itself so sometimes if I'm processing something like this with a client I'll get them to close their eyes and really find the most vulnerable sensation vibration or animation and to hold it like a baby bird in the palms of their hands and and to just be with it like literally just to sit with it without resisting it and a spontaneous kind of healing process comes about often just through that attendance. Okay. But we, we, we avoid, we, we think we're going to get stuck there. We, we avoid going to these most vulnerable places because we think if we do, we're going to get, we'll never get out. I agree. But actually the, the quickest way is the way through and, and to actually go into it. Sometimes things then need to burp out, like, you know, sometimes then you mm-hmm, we've all had that good cry. That burp it out, the emotions. And feel then it. feel better afterwards. Yeah. So by just attending that movement of then, you know, the deep sorrow and the tears and even the sobbing can come through and, and oh. suddenly it, it doesn't feel so heavy. But um, we, we do ourselves a great disservice mm-hmm. when we... We refuse to go to those vulnerable places. Um, I wasn't aware that I was suppressing so hard until we had that conversation. And for anybody watching this, since I wasn't aware, you might not be aware. So how it looks like is like this. I'm so focused on work. I'm so focused on getting shit done. I don't have time to mourn the loss of anybody. I will be upset, then I'll get the hell over it. So I've got this mindset, right, of just doing, doing, because I don't have time to sit in bed. That's what I think for seven days straight and be upset. Or even one hour, I don't want to be sad. But how are you gonna? how are you going to heal? How are you going to get rid of the resentment, the anger, or whatever? How are you going to stop feeling rejected, whatever it is that you're feeling, if you don't take that time out to actually feel your feelings? Yes. Did I describe that good for the, you know? But to be fair, what? there is time to be distract yourself. We all have to put on a break sometimes. So I've that's the dance. And everything. That's the dance. Well, you know, sometimes, and sometimes it really is too overwhelming mm. to go into. But where true healing comes when we can really just it's actually more simple than we even realize you just gotta feel it just feel it make some time to feel it right make some time to feel it love that (laughs) perfect um out of curiosity do you follow the work of dr joe dispenser I don't follow it, but I've been. I what I do like about it. I don't, I haven't done any of these programs, but a lot of clients have brought um, him to my attention, wow. and okay. I like that he talks about the inner healing um, intelligence. I don't know how he's, he's into the met, he's into the metaphysical, yeah, exactly. and brave enough to bring it into the academic world and face exactly. judge. You know, he gets judged for it, um, and the neuroplasticity. Yes. Um, and he really appears to male populations. I think mm-hmm. he's a good personal development um, He appeals figure. to me. Yeah, well, I'm mm-hmm. sure both. But, yeah, it's good to see the Definitely young both. blokes yeah. getting into the, you know, Absolutely. <laughs> the personal development. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I want to ask you that. Um, Shana, why do you think um, body dysmorphia exists and it's on the rise? Do you think it's due to mainstream media, filters, magazines? What is, what is body dysmorphia? Why does it exist? <laughs> that's it. That's probably not that's my area one. of expertise. But, but my sense about it. is it is an, a symptom expressing how much we've come to be identified with the body. Okay. And that um, we, we place all emphasis um, on this little flesh-encapsulated mm-hmm. ego of our body representing everything about ourselves, which from a spiritual perspective um, is something that isn't um, considered to be the truth. But, yeah, we live in a society that, and even we interact with other people 
where this body of ours is considered, yeah, the main port, the main symbol of, of who the person is. Um, and yes, of course, the media saturation Everything. and and yeah, but I it's heavy. It can cover childhood trauma, media, a whole series of things, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we yeah, I think it's as simple as that in many ways. It's just the brainwashing, the and and yeah, the younger people. I know from being born in the early eighties, I think I managed to escape some of the high saturation of You were born in the eighties? Yes, I think I was too. But I think the generation slightly after when there's been more social media and mm. so forth, they're getting a much For denser sure. saturation. Probably, you know, back oh. in the if we were born in the sixties, we probably wouldn't have had as much as it. <laughs> and then let, let's face it, in the nineteen, you know, in the medieval times, mm. you probably who knows how much no, you you're right. Cared there was that. no social media filter. Yes. There wasn't so much pressure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, do you think the EDMR thing that you spoke about would help anybody with body dysmorphia who sees himself differently, doesn't feel comfortable inside their body? Yeah, conceivably, especially if it's related to childhood trauma. Mm. And EMDR is really good for um, identifying the very belief that is causing the symptom and, and really? kind of des- desensitising it. So if you can really access what belief, if it's just a, I'm not good enough, I'm bad, or, and and then you use the process with mm-hmm. that. But, yeah, it's a very complex um, presentation. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Shana, if someone has an issue with um, intimacy, um, if someone has an issue with intimacy, what's your first tip or advice you have for them? What can they start doing if they have issues with intimacy? Not just sexual intimacy, one-on-one situations, you know, social phobia kind of environments. Intimacy, Intimacy, sitting one-on-one with people, not feeling comfortable, or even in groups, but I prefer one-on-one. I'm going to sound like Brene Brown here, but her work, Brene Brown's work was, yeah, the one trait that could really measure um, your capacity for being in a relationship and being able to live an authentic life is your capacity for vulnerability. Wow. And so I think we live in a very vulnerability-avoidant culture and I think a lot of um, these kind of coping defence mechanisms which cut one off or even have one feel you know, quite socially yeah. anxious maybe stem from that. So my suggestion would be is to cultivate vulnerability by being honest um, with yourself and being vulnerability. Okay, yeah. Vulnerability isn't like being a victim and being woe is me. It's it's just realising and being humble enough to realise that you don't have all the answers. We're all kind of fumbling in the dark. Okay. And, and if we can all show up towards each other and have the vulnerability and the safety to be vulnerable because yeah. it's not always safe to be vulnerability you don't want to put your vulnerability mm-hmm. in just anyone's hands no. um but yeah in find spaces where vulnerability is cultivated, cultivated celebrated um held worlds and safely um so that you can get com- more comfortable a room i'm in a yoga training and the it's an extraordinary um, space because vulnerability is so embraced and the level of connection and depth of friendship that comes from that mm-hmm. is, is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, vulnerability, I think, is what it's all about when wow. it comes to intimacy. That was a fantastic answer and I loved how you said, firstly, be in a cultivating space, a space where 
they're also also open to being vulnerable because I have not been able to be vulnerable with some with in a space where they're all closed off and acting narcissistic yes. or whatever. So in a safe space like this, that's why I'm vulnerable here or somewhere else. With my spiritual friends or people who that, that are open with me, I'm open too. So one, find a place that's cultivating your vulnerability, open. And um, yeah, vulnerability means being real, being humble, taking off a pretentious hat and just not acting like we've all got the answers but contributing to one another. And you touched upon narcissism, wow. which we're seeing yeah. a lot of. There's a Harvard professor who's really pushing hard for narcissistic personality disorder mm. to be renamed vulnerability avoidance disorder because yeah. that is what is at the heart oh, of that pathology. It's a defense mechanism against vulnerability. And that's why it's not safe to be with someone um, who's vulnerability avoid it because they will weaponize and certainly oh, play like a fiddle but it's a, a yeah it's a sad pathology that's been um exacerbated by a, a culture that kind of has revered an avoidance of vulnerability even if you look at leaders and ceos yeah. and absolutely and they're, they're not often the um demonstrating much vulnerability a lot of the times so we've got to change that in our culture that we start seeing vulnerability and empathy as some of the most important evolutionary traits and start expecting them more in our leaders, teachers, CEOs. I'm going to make sure that vulnerability um, gets implemented in Mindset 2.0, our podcast. I've never liked too much vulnerability, but I definitely see importance, importance mm-hmm. in that. So I'm going to be taken on board, guys. So maybe you can too in whatever it is that you do. All right? All right. Change well, starts with us. I'll hold you to it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm making Shara exhaust. I've only got a couple of questions left, guys. <sighs> I'll leave it at this one. We'll leave the the mystical, mystical question for another time. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite quote of all time that inspires you and helps you have faith and stay motivated? What is something in your bathroom I saw the Frida um, quote? What's your favorite, one of your favorite quotes? One I've been chewing on a lot lately lately and apparently may have come from the Buddha's um, um, voice, mouth himself. Um, It is, and it seems to be the formula for enlightenment. But anyway, it's um, just just recognise that everything is ungraspable and stop trying to perfect yourself. Just recognise that everything is ungraspable and stop trying to perfect yourself. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now, I'd like to say, why is everything ungraspable? <laughs> because it's a mystery. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can really enjoy it is as a mystery. Who said this? Did I say that? <laughs> Was this from Buddha or no? This is one of the yeah, fundamental um, principles of Buddhism is that, yeah, that one has to really let go of trying to grasp, make sense of things with the mind. It's the grasping, the judging, resisting, whereas if we can drop all of that and and then that's the only way we can be in the present moment anyway. It's the only thing that gets us out of and the past and the, or, or the future is to let go of that reference point in the past so trying to grasp things control things yeah yeah, things and then, out. yeah and trying to build a better future and trying to get a peek around the corner no one ever gets a peek around the corner and it's only here in this present moment that we can have the freedom that we've all been looking mm-hmm. for but we have to drop 
all of that. We have to drop our meaning-making minds um, to be able to access that. So, yeah, sitting comfortably in the mystery is what it's all about. <laughs> when she first said that, I was going to argue the Buddha on that. I was going to say my mind wants to say... Um, want to say something but then I figured out it's true even if you think that there are things that you can grasp and get such as love or even love ends one day when the person dies or it ends even life we die so they do have some that does make sense yeah yeah look in the now the now is all we have (laughs) we're not taking any exactly the now is all we have Shana, loved having you on, on, on this episode so and um, can't wait to do more things with you. Next week I'll be at her breath workshop and mm-hmm. um, we'll, we'll get some content and keep you guys posted. Um, thank you, Shana. And mm-hmm. guys, follow Shana on social media. She's going to be a little bit more active on social media <laughs> online. And if you're in Melbourne, contact details are below. Reach out to Shana or come to one of the breath shops, breath workshops. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Bye.